All right, Isaiah chapter 3, and we're going to notice that the prophet has just completed his cry to the people that they put away their idols, to no longer trust in themselves. Uh, Ending the second chapter that humans are just a breath, so why would you possibly put hope in anything that you can do or any confidence in yourself to be able to deliver, to be able to find any hope within you? And and now we're going to notice in these next two chapters just four movements as Isaiah now decrees the judgment that is coming upon them and an explanation of their condemnation and yet some more reasoning as why it's happening. So uh, rather than reading the two chapters as a whole, we'll read them in pieces and and make comments and observations about that uh, as we go. So let's just start with the first seven verses of chapter 3. Isaiah 3 verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and to this heap of ruins shall be your under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people." Now, you'll notice a bit of humor mixed in with a lot of doom here as Isaiah now begins his prophecy of this next section. You notice he describes what things are going to be like. As God is going to execute his judgments against Jerusalem and against Judah, he says, everything that you rely upon in terms of government support is all going to be stripped away. All of it's going to be eradicated. Notice verse 1, from the food and the water, verse 2, to the soldiers and the mighty men, the judges and the elders that rule over them. Verse 3, more of the military and and all of those pictures are given that a a total collapse of what they know the total collapse of their support and government system so dramatic that he says there in verse 4 your boys are going to be the princes and your infants are going to be the ones that are going to rule over you. There's there's not going to be anything left. You're not going to have any rulers left. In fact the, the humor is so severe as to how bad it's going to be in terms of leadership. You'll notice there in verse 6 it says that somebody who has a cloak, they're going to go up to him and say, you're our leader. Uh, If you have any possession whatsoever, if there's anything left in your house, everybody's going to run to you and say, well, you're special. Uh, You need to be the one to lead us. And then really funny there in verse 6, and and this uh, heap of ruins is what you're going to rule over. That's what's going to be left. So if you have a cloak, you're our leader. And guess what you get to rule over this pile of rocks right here. Uh, That's all that's going to be left. And then that person, verse 7, he's going to come out and say, no, I'm not going to be your leader. Uh, That's not going to happen. I'm not going to lead you in the slightest. I have nothing to offer. So all leaders, all those in authority, all those of any use and value are all going to be stripped away from you. Uh, The judgment is going to be very severe against the nation. And so here's God's declaration. The whole system that you know, your 
whole way of life, everything that you know about this nation is all going to be taken away from you. And now he explains the reason for that. Notice verse 8 now. For judgment, for, excuse me, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, and it shall be ill for them, for what his hand for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, for they have swallowed up the course of your paths. And so here's now the reasoning behind the judgment. And verse 8 gives the, the good summary here. Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen. Why? Because their speech... And their deeds are against the Lord. This is why judgment has come upon you. Everything about you stands against God. And you will notice how awful it is depicted there in verse 9. Not only is it that you're committing these sins, you're openly proclaiming these sins. And that's what he says there in verse 8. It's not only your actions, but you say it with your mouth. Verse 9 gives the picture you've lost all of your shame. You've become like... Like Sodom. It's not that you just do these sins in private and keep it to yourself. You go around glorifying it and you're denying the glorious presence of God. Instead, proclaiming your sins on the rooftop, you've lost all your shame. That should be a fairly frightening declaration that we read by God. When a nation begins to not only commit sins, but to proclaim it openly, to rally behind it, to state it on the rooftop that this is what we do. We believe in this kind of activity. We believe in these sins. It's okay to do these things. God says, I can't stand that. To be able to to glorify in the sins being committed. Here is God just coming down and saying, how can that possibly be? Where is your shame? How can you turn your heart to be like Sodom, to be proud of your sins? Bad enough when we engage in these sins. Bad enough when we think that we are hiding our sins from God and think that we've done something in private. But how much worse than to be proud of it? How much worse than to glorify in it? How much worse than to make open declarations about it and say, well, here's what I do. And I think we have to be very careful about that from all kinds of different things. We sometimes can uh, choose to be like, well, you know, it's not a big deal that we don't really love God. You know, that's just the way things are. We're busy. You know, we got things to do, places to be, all these kinds of things. From sexual sins to things that we often don't think of, it is easy for us to slip into a place where we say, well, this is okay. And we tell people that this is the sin that we're committing. And God observes those things. And he says there in verse 9, woe to them. And notice the description of the boomerang effect of sin. That the actions that we take have necessary consequences or necessary rewards. And notice how he does that threefold in these next three verses. Verse 9, for they have brought evil on themselves. Verse 10, they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. And verse uh, verse 11, 
For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. So you have three times there this statement of what you've done, that's what's going to come back to you. How you've acted, that's by which you will be judged. And so a woe to the people. What you've done has brought about these consequences. When we choose to live sinfully, when we choose to then engage in acts that are in violation of God, he says, I want you to understand that there is a boomerang effect, that it's going to come back upon Upon you, And the scriptures described throughout it, there's two ways that happens. Number one is that we deal with consequences of sins right now in this life. And the book of Proverbs fills us with that kind of imagery. The consequences of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Our sins begin to capture us such that engage in them long enough it becomes so gravely difficult to stop and we lock into vices and addictions and problems that we have such a hard time breaking because the flesh becomes dependent upon it because the mind becomes dependent upon it and our hearts begin to seek it and enjoy it and the proverb writer gives a warning the iniquities of the wicked ensnare them you get caught by sin And the great lie of Satan is, well, you'll just do it this once. Just this one time, it'll be okay. You can stop at any time. You can get out of it. Just today, one time, and tomorrow you'll you'll stop. And the writer of Proverbs says, no, that's not the way sin works. Sin ensnares, it captures us, it holds us fast so that we begin to be caught by it and have such a difficulty breaking out of it. And so as a warning to guard our hearts, guard our eyes, guard ourselves toward purity because we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that's just going to be this one time. And then it'll all be better. That's not the way sin works. And then the scriptures give us the second consequence, the passage we know very well. Sin separates us from God. The wages of sin is death. And consider how Paul described that. He doesn't just say, here's what happens when you commit sin. Here's what the result is. Notice he uses the imagery of wages. You're getting what is deserved to you. This is the payment. This is this boomerang effect again. This is what comes. The payback of these actions is that there is eternal death, separation from God. They are the wages that are due to us by the actions that we take. And so as a reminder, then these two aspects, we are going to pay for our sins now and we pay for our sins in eternity. We are separated from God, but we experience all all kinds of woes and difficulties and suffering based upon our sinful decisions. And so he drives us at them here in verse 9. Woe to them, you've brought this evil on yourself. What his hands have dealt out, that's what is going to be done to them. And then add to it in verse 12, your leaders have led you astray. You're following blindly these leaders and these leaders are doing what is wrong. And so your obedience to them is wrong. And that is another reason why these sins are coming back upon you. Verse 12, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. You're no longer going the right way by following what these leaders are saying in Israel. Rather than leading in morality and righteousness and the ways of God, they're leading them to destruction. And yet they still followed anyway. And so that's the reason God says 
You've chosen this path. You've picked these sins. You've decided to live your life that way. And so you're going to pay the consequences. And now the sentence is decreed. Let's listen to what the sentence and payment for these sins are. Verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said... Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike them with a scab, the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets and the headbands and the crescents, the pendants and the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets. Signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors and the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. Then seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. All right. I love the sentence. Verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment. Verse verse 13, the Lord takes his place to contend. He stands to judge the people. Here's the declaration. Here's what is stated to them. Verse 14, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. Here is this statement again. You have done what is wrong. This is just recompense because of your actions. And listen to what they've done there. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Verse 15. Why are you crushing my people, grinding the faces of the poor? And notice what they've done from verse 16 almost to the end of the chapter. Notice the description of their wealth. In fact, it's even in sound. I love verse 16. Uh, Mincing along as they go, tinkling of the feet. This picture of all of their ornaments, all of their jewelry, all of their wealth. You can hear them as they wander around. They have all of this wealth about them. He describes their clothes. He describes their jewelry. And he says, here are the wealthy. And what are you doing? He says, you're crushing the poor. You're oppressing them. You're smashing their face into the ground. Instead of being... Kind, caring toward those who are in need instead of being uh, concerned about them. He says, you're taking from them. Verse 14, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. You're the one ruining them. You're the one causing this. And God is saying, I expected for you to have some social justice. I expected for you to have some social concern for the people. But instead, you're taking pride in your wealth. You're just enjoying your wealth. It's all for yourself. It's all about what it will do for you, what, how you can enjoy it. And you don't care who you hurt. You don't care how you acquire it. As long as you have your things, you'll do whatever it takes to be able to have it. 
And Isaiah gives us a very enormous warning here about taking care about how we use the blessings of God. An enormous warning here to us to be careful because it is so easy to take the blessings of God and ruin them through our misuse. And that's what Isaiah is is, is describing here. They've taken the wealth, they've taken all that God has done in blessing this nation, and instead of being thankful to God, instead of using their wealth to advance the kingdom, instead of using their wealth to do good by others, It's all a selfish concern, crushing other people, all about what they can do for themselves. And it is a warning for us to not take the blessings of God lightly. It is a warning to us to take care that we don't take the good things that God has given us and use them in a way that is sinful and wrong. Think about how we can do that. Take the blessing of family, how easy it is to take that for granted and to be concerned about so many other things in this world rather than the spiritual health of our spouse or our children or our parents. We're more concerned about our time, our wealth, what we're doing rather than the good of one another, the good of our family, the good of other Christians. Take what we've seen in our society today, that God has given the blessing of sexual relations and marriage. And how perverted that has become through pornography, through adultery, through divorce, through homosexuality. Taking something that God has decreed as good and a blessing to people and then misusing it into sexual immorality. And here's God throwing his hands up and saying, I gave you blessings, I gave you wealth. Look at the good things I'm trying to do by you. And you misuse my blessings. You misuse the good things that I'm giving you. And we use them in selfish ways rather than using them to the glory of God. And so there's a big warning here that he wants Israel to have. You were supposed to use these things to glorify God. The blessings that I gave you. Everything that you have, everything that you do was to be received in thanksgiving and given praise to God for it. And instead you didn't care to do that And you didn't care about how your sins affected other people It was just simply a life of self A life of consuming goods Consuming God's blessings And failing to see the need to turn those blessings In use to God and to his kingdom And so Isaiah brings that all down And simply says you've brought all this on yourself When you misuse the blessings And the description there verse 25 and 26 And that's why your men are going to fall by the sword That's why judgment's falling upon you And the judgment's going to be so severe There won't even hardly be any men So chapter 4 verse 1 Seven women in one day will just beg for a man To be able to take care of them We'll provide for ourselves just Take away our reproach. And so here is Israel being described as a desolation that's going to come. Your mighty men will be destroyed. Your government's going to be ruined. Your blessings are taken away. Your wealth is stripped away. You're not going to have anything left because you refuse to give God the glory. Now we've seen in Isaiah how he does this warning judgment imagery. And then after doing that, says, now I want to tell you about what the future is going to be like. Instead of Isaiah yet again just stopping there and saying, now, bye, you know, almost like an Amos, just drop the ball and it's all going to be over with, it's the end of the story. 
Isaiah now gives a a real message of hope here now in these final few verses. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. What you have pictured for us is the Lord is going to now create true beauty. Listen to the picture and the imagery that is vividly given here as he begins in verse 2. Notice that in that day, down the road, we've seen in that day back in chapter 2, this coming messianic age, there's going to be something great. And he says, the branch of the Lord is going to come. And that word branch is, is a somewhat complex word to... Uh, get a handle on with only one English word. As it literally just kind of means a growing thing. And so it's typically used as a, a branch. And the idea of this branch or growing thing is that it carries it with it the idea of a new growth. There's going to be this renewal, a new growing thing. Now, we really don't have that down here. This, you know, when winter comes, everything just goes. Not here, but about everywhere else where you get these stark branches with no leaves and everything goes dormant and seems to be dead. But then spring comes and there's new growth and there's this renewal that begins to occur. And that's the imagery behind the branch is there is going to be renewal. There's going to be a new growth that springs up from the earth again. And you see how that's tied closely to the fruit of the land. There's going to be this time where there's going to be blessing, this renewal that's going to occur from the Messiah. In fact, interestingly enough, the uh, Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures which are called Targums actually translate this the Messiah. That's how confident they were of what the branch of the Lord was talking about. We're looking forward to the Messiah to come and when he comes he's going to bring renewal and restoration and deliverance and salvation. And so this imagery is described of that that the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and not talking about him and a in a picture of his physical characteristics but what he is going to do. The work that he is going to accomplish is going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. It is going to bring be called the fruit of the land. And everybody is going to turn to that. And so that is the, the imagery here is chapter 2 and chapter 3 have described the rubble we just saw. The people are going to turn and say, hey, if you have a cloak, be our leader and rule over this rubble. A day is going to come where the rubble and the desolation won't be there anymore. That God is going to renew. God is going to bring new life again. He's going to raise up this nation. It's going to be the fruit of the land, this growing thing. And it's going to be so glorious and beautiful 
that this branch, this growing thing, this fruit of the land, he says, is going to be the honor of the remnant. You see that there in verse 2. It should be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. They are going to put their glory in the right place. Rather than glorifying their riches, rather than putting their trust in their own things and trusting themselves as if it was from them, they're going to put their pride and honor in the branch. And he's going to be glorious. And he's going to be beautiful. And that is where their honor will be. And then notice how he extends upon that in in verse 3. This is just simply amazing. Verse 3 He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. What is really neat about this is that he doesn't state this in a plural. He doesn't just say, okay, all the peoples of Israel that are left, the remnant, they're all going to be called holy. He describes it very individually. It would literally be God saying, holy will be said to each person. So what is going to happen in that day is here's what God's going to do. Here's what this branch is going to accomplish. He's going to say, you're holy and you're holy and you are holy and you are holy and you are holy. There's a very individual idea in in the Hebrew wording here. It's singular. Each man will be called holy. You will be called holy to God. And then he amplifies that in verse three and says, you'll be recorded for life in Jerusalem. And that is not a foreign idea. We know that very well in the New Testament, but it is also found in many places in the Old Testament where Moses himself even recognized that God had a book of life. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, 33, if God's not going to go with us, then just blot me out of the book of life. The same kind of picture here. If Here's what the remnant will be. When the branch comes along, the survivors, the remnant, they're going to put their honor and glory in that branch, and the branch is going to declare them holy one by one. You are holy, and you're going to be recorded for life in Jerusalem. And I think it's important to ask the question that how can it be that God could take this sinful people and call them holy? I think that's the inherent tension of this description. He has just wailed on them for all of their sins. You're not trusting in God. You're trusting in your wealth. You're oppressing the people. You are full of sins. How can it be that God could say to these people, one by one individually, you are holy to the Lord? And you are recorded for life in Jerusalem. Well, notice verse 4 gives the answer. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. A really great imagery here. And I want us to get a feel of how gross verse 4 is. And I apologize for this, but I don't. <laughs> but to understand what God is saying, you've got to get a feel of what he's really doing here in this verse. He says, the Lord is going to have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. That word for filth is amazingly disgusting. Later in Isaiah 28 and verse 8, you're going to see the same Hebrew word and it's translated vomit. And even later in Isaiah, Isaiah 36 and verse 12, the same Hebrew word again, where it's translated excrement or dung. 
He's trying to draw a visualization of, do you understand how gross we look to God when we are full of our sins? And filth just kind of is almost a little too sanitized to get the idea of how disgusting the imagery is that he is painting upon the people. Do you see that you are full of filth? You are gross before God. You are an abomination before God because you are full of sins. This is how God sees us, just full of this filth. And I think it leaves again this inherent question, this inherent tension. Well, who would want to touch somebody like that? Who would want to be with such people that are filled with filth? Uh, Any of you have kids? Do you remember what it was like when they were really little? And there were times where you didn't know what to do with the child after a diaper. You just felt like, you know, you about had to start over with a new kid. They were just so gross. I mean, it was just like, goodness gracious, how did that happen? And you need a hose and everything else. You just don't even want to touch the kid. I can't remember how many times I'm like, April, you know, <laughs> I can barely handle touching this, this filthy child. Who would want to touch this? It is gross. You are full of filth. It's disgusting. God does. God's the one who does. That's what's so amazing about the image. Here are filthy, disgusting, vile people. And God says, I want to clean them. I want to cleanse them of their filth. I'm going to wash them clean of their stains. I'm the one that's going to come in and do something about that. I'm going to call them holy. I'm going to purify them. I'm going to wash them up. And they're going to be clean again. But I want you to see how that was going to happen. Verse 4 says nothing to the fact that, well, what God is going to do is just, you know, pretend those sins didn't happen. God's holiness has to remain intact. And that's something you're going to see throughout Isaiah's judgment is decreed over and over again. God in speaking about restoration and renewal and hope never is saying, well, what's going to happen is I'm just going to lessen up my standards. I'm going to loosen them up and it'll just be easier. and I won't be such a harsh God anymore. I, I don't know where that idea ever came from, that God was so much more difficult or harsh under the Old Testament, but got, you know, kind of eased up and got a more gracious in the new. That's not what the scriptures ever depict. In fact, I think it's pretty sustainable that he argues the opposite. The picture here, notice how it's going to happen in verse 4. By a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, judgment's going to have to come for their sins. Judgment is certainly going to arrive, but there is going to be salvation that's going to come through that judgment. Those who are truly mine are going to rise out of this, and they're going to be followers of me. People who seek me and listen to me, they are the ones who are going to be this remnant. They're the ones that are going to be chosen by God and participate in this glorious renewal that's going to occur. And so there's a recognition of judgment must come, but there is a hope that is sprinkled with that, that through that judgment comes salvation. And that is a a repeated message, just like Acts chapter 2. Here's a picture of judgment and quoting Joel 2, and yet salvation is coming through judgment. And so here it is as well. Now watch what he does here in verse 5. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all of her assemblies a cloud by day 
and smoke and the shining of flame by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Here is a great picture of this creating of a new Zion, this divine act. God is going to bring about a restoration. It is a new Zion. It is an imagery of protection. And you see that, verse 5, most of you immediately, when you read about a cloud by day and smoke and flaming fire by night, immediately conjure up the Exodus imagery. Immediately remember, well, that, what was God doing there in the tabernacle as He was leading the people through the wilderness to the promised land? And so it has a picture of leading and guidance, it has a picture of God being with His people, it has a picture of protection. God is with us, He is defending us, He is taking care of us. Remember that Exodus imagery as the people are crossing the Red Sea, as the, the pillar picks up and moves to the back and protects them as they move on through the Red Sea. It's a great imagery of God leading and protecting. You see that in verse 6 as it's amplified. A booth for shade by day from the heat, refuge and shelter from storm and rain. He, God is going to be a refuge to the people. He's going to protect these people. He will care for them and lead them. And so he's making it possible for these people to be with God. And the way that he describes that he's going to do that is is really quite fascinating there in verse 5. As he describes there, these people are going to be his. They're recorded for life. These are the ones that are called holy. But notice in verse 5 he says, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. And you kind of read that and go, huh? But that's actually a really beautiful, exceptional statement that is made there because that word is used in the Old Testament to describe a a wedding pavilion. That's the kind of canopy that's in in view. The Old Testament always uses this in terms of a, a wedding pavilion. And so the idea looks like this, that Zion's going to be cleansed, they're going to be purged of their sins, and they're going to be ready for this wedding pavilion. This wedding gathering is going to occur. This faint illusion then of being brought into a covenant relationship with His people again. And so it all fits together, the imagery of what God wants His people to see. You are full of your sins, you are in filth, but guess what's going to happen? The Messiah, the Christ, the branch of the Lord is going to come, and He will be the glory of the remnant. Those who belong to the Lord are going to glorify in Him. They won't glorify in themselves. They won't glorify in their wealth. They won't glorify in anything about them. Their glory and their honor, their pride will all be about the branch to come. And then those who belong to the Lord receive something amazing. Filth washed away. An individual declaration made by God. You are holy and recorded for life for Zion, for Jerusalem. And God that is pictured as dwelling with the people, protecting the people, entering into a wedding covenant with the people, joined with them as His. In such a small little paragraph, can you see Isaiah looking out to the distance, to the great things that Christ was going to do? We are now in that position. Here we stand on the other side of that prediction, that glorious prophecy of when the Christ comes, here's what He's going to do. 
how gracious he's going to be and how his people will be the ones that will be made clean. His people are the ones that are going to renounce the ways of the world and put all of their pride and all of their honor in the Messiah. Will we do what he says the people of God are going to be? Will we put our trust in him? Will we glorify him and take the blessings the grace and the goodness that He has bestowed upon us. Take our physical blessings, take the the riches and goodness of God and use them to glorify God, to use them to advance the borders of God's kingdom, to use it to teach the world. Or are we going to consume what God has given us in selfish ways, misusing His blessings for our own sinful destruction? The choice becomes ours. What we do, God will repay. If we choose to put our glory in Him, if we choose to exalt Him, He says, I'll exalt you. I will be part of a covenant relationship with you. I will cleanse those sins off of you. I will declare you holy. You will be my people and we'll be in covenant together. But if we choose not to do that, if we choose to see the things of this world as all about for ourselves and all for us, then we have judgment that will surely come. And so Isaiah pictures for us who we need to be, to be the people of God, what it looks like in getting our sins taken away, being holy to the Lord, and putting our glory in Him rather than the sinful world. I hope as you go through this week, you'll consider then what is being expected of us, what God's people look like, what God's people represent in this day and time. This is what it means to be God's people. People cleansed of filth, unworthy of that great and gracious act, but how wonderful it is to be able to stand clean before Him, which causes us to desire to put away the filth, to put away the garbage of life, to not misuse His blessings, and instead see every good and perfect gift from Him that I want to use now for Him in service to Him. You pull your songbooks out, we're singing an invitation song, and we're inviting you to come to the glorious Jesus. He is the branch of the Lord who came to purify the people of sins, that God loved people so much that he would be willing to come to this earth and he would rub elbows with the filthy wicked like us. And that he wanted to save people such as us, vile and sinful though we were. And God says, I love you so much, I'll send my son so that you can be made clean and holy again, so that you can participate in covenant relationship with Him, so that you can be called holy to the Lord and stand before Him clean and be a child of His. If you're ready to do that, simply make the determination today to turn away from your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, dedicating your heart and faith to obey Him with all of your heart. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?